0: Welcome to Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and industry experts about everything from emerging trends to regulatory pressures to marketing strategies. The food court used to be the place where all the cool kids hung out in high school snacking on french fries and flirting with each other. But for food and beverage manufacturers today, The phrase has an entirely different and notably more negative meaning thanks to a surge in class action litigation filed against them in the past decade for myriad reasons. According to new research released earlier this year by the U.S. Chamber Institute of Legal Reform, the number of class action cases filed against food and beverage companies exceeded a staggering 170 cases last year alone. This is compared to a mere 20 cases in 2008. The uptick really took hold about five years ago when attorneys began arguing that marketing claims that products were quote unquote natural created multiple avenues for consumer confusion. And while these cases continue today, the types of claims that can land a company in court are far more broad. As the U.S. Chamber Institute for Legal Reform report shows, many of the claims listed in litigation are laughable and are quickly tossed out by judges, but many others are settled at great costs to companies or litigated for years. And in these cases, the Institute argues, the only real winners are the plaintiff's attorneys who take sizable portions of any settlement and leave consumers with only a few dollars in return or a voucher for a product replacement. To find out what's driving this uptick in litigation, and how these cases are built, their impact on industry, and what, if anything, can be done to protect manufacturers, I caught up with Howard Kim, the Executive Vice President of Legal Reform Initiatives at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Institute for Legal Reform.
1: Well, I think I would start with the percentage increase from 2008 in terms of actual class action filings, which were about 20, and then when you look at 2016, you're looking at 170. So, by my calculation, that's a 750% increase in class actions, which really is, is something that's eye-opening when you look at the level of activity and the concentration of these cases in some of these jurisdictions you know you you ask what is driving it and i think it's just simply you know it's a it's a cash cash infusion revenue model that our friends in the plaintiff's bar have basically pursued where you know a lot of these cases don't even go to trial you know they're trying to leverage a settlement where the plaintiff's bar collects a significant amount of fees while unfortunately the The putative class, the class members that the lawsuit is there to protect or at least to provide compensation for, they don't really get a a meaningful recovery. And so that's, unfortunately, uh, that's been the case with class actions in the United States. It's not just confined to food class actions, uh, but there are all different variations of class actions, and it's really the profit motive and the revenue-driven model that uh, the plaintiff's bar has been pursuing that we think is generating those.
0: Harold explained that this revenue-driven model, as he called it, starts and ends with lawyers who bring the cases and not the consumers that they purport to represent.
1: When I went to law school, uh, usually the, the idea was that you're a lawyer, you would be contacted or you would get a referral from someone who was injured or had a grievance, and then they would vindicate their rights in court. And As a lawyer, you would go and test the theory and you know, do your own due diligence. Uh, unfortunately, the class actions, it's the other way around, meaning the lawyers actually come up with the theory of liability. This is, this is their plan. They're going to file a class action lawsuit against Nutella, so, for instance, just because the way that they're marketing their hazelnut spread is deceptive because it's, you know, somehow healthy or it's being perceived as healthy. And so, gee, why don't we try and sue, think about a lawsuit, a class-action lawsuit against Nutella. Here's, you know, we've got the label, we've got the commercials, and oh, by the way, we have a Consumer Fraud Protection Act statute in the state, and let's sue Nutella. And, and by the way, we're also going to have to find, you know, a lead class member to bring this case because it can't be under the lawyer's well- have to they actually find someone. And so they'll recruit a plaintiff, um, a named plaintiff, and then they'll say that you know there was a broad class of people who bought Nutella. Then they file the lawsuit, and you know the goal here is, look, maybe we can get this company to settle and let's let's you know kind of test our theories by going to the class certification phase. And so, you know, it's, it's a little kind of – it's awkward in the way that the litigation is brought because it's really being driven by the lawyers themselves and not because of a perceived complaint from a consumer. You know, the lawyers are the ones who actually benefit the most compared to the consumers. So, you know, you'll, you'll end up having a class action lawsuit where um, the company decides to settle the case because, you know, the, the amount of potential liability could, you know, Could be damaging to the company if not. You know, you're betting the entire company itself on the outcome of a verdict. So you enter into a settlement, and as part of the settlement, you have plaintiffs' lawyers, you know, taking more than half of the actual settlement recoveries as part of their fees and costs. And then, you know, for the consumers, it's you know some sort of a rebate or you know, like in the uh, there's a Starkist case, which which is interesting, where the plaintiffs' lawyers you know, food class action there, you know, collected $3.6 million in fees where the consumers uh, who they were representing were receiving, like, you know, $4 vouchers for cans of tuna. And so, you know, you, you look at the balance of the recoveries, and it's kind of ridiculous. Um, you know, another example is, you know, Red Bull was sued um, by plaintiffs lawyers for, for for some labeling there. And the plaintiffs' lawyers here collected like almost 3.4 million dollars in fees and expenses. And the consumers, you know, they they either received a four-pack of Red Bull, or you know, a four dollar twenty-three, you know, four four dollar and twenty-three cent cash per claim uh, rebate. And so, you know, it it just becomes this this rigged rigged type of system that you're seeing. And, again, this is not dissimilar to the type of class actions you see in other types of cases. You know, it doesn't have to be food products. I mean, this is, this is sort of a playbook uh, that the plaintiff's bar has had out there for, you know, over a decade, and it continues to be very problematic because it's, it's all about getting recovery on those fees, and it's so disproportionate that it really shocks the conscience.
0: In an effort to stop these alleged abuses of the system, Howard and other stakeholders are pinning a lot of hope on the Fairness in Class Action Litigation and Furthering Asbestos Claim Transparency Act of 2017, which was passed in the House in early March but has since stalled in the Senate since it was introduced on March 13th. Harold explains how the litigation, if signed by the President, could help.
1: Our efforts right now at the Chamber to support the Fairness in Class Action Litigation Act uh, which is legislation that was introduced this Congress. Uh, the the bill has already moved out of the House Judiciary Committee, and it would it would um, you know bring a lot more parity and proportionality to the way that class action litigation is brought. So, for example, uh, the legislation would do things like give consumers um, you know a, a greater equity. In terms of the settlement proceeds, so for example, there would be a restriction on the plaintiffs' lawyers actually recovering their fees until the consumers themselves have actually gotten compensated. Because a lot of times you get these settlements, and you know some of the lead plaintiffs they may get compensated, they may get an incentive award, but you know you have to opt in. Uh, you know you have to opt in to to get this information or to get the uh, proceeds, and. Um, you know, a lot of times consumers they don't collect from from the settlement proceeds and so that money kind of remains in there. And so you know the proposal from Congress is, look, you know the plaintiffs, the plaintiffs lawyers will not get paid until the consumers get paid. Uh, also, the bill would specifically require the disclosure of any potential conflict of interest where you have you know a, a lawyer's cousin who is the lead plaintiff. well, that ought to be disclosed to you know to the court you know, to see if there is a potential conflict of interest and, you know, to to address this issue where these cases are being manufactured basically by the plaintiff's bar. Uh, There are also uh, uh, tightening of standards for class certification in order to, you know, to really convey the true intent of the class action mechanism and to offer procedural protections so that, you know, defendants have a right to appeal class certification decisions to the appellate courts. And, um, you know, it's, it's common-sense legislation, and it's got a strong amount of support uh, from the business community and others in Congress.
0: Until such time as this or other similar legislation passes, manufacturers in the food and beverage space need to stay on their toes and stay out of the way of the evolving types of allegations brought in class action cases. Harold explains that the vast bulk of activity currently focuses on products marketed as natural. But there are also significant cases dealing with slack fill, evaporated cane juice, handmade claims, and more.
1: The, the biggest concentration of food class actions deal with whether the product is marketed as natural you know, or, or nothing artificial or no preservatives. Um, you know, so if there is a presence of genetically modified organisms or some ingredients that would then serve the basis of that lawsuit. Um, and so based on just the last you know three years uh, of federal and state class actions, about 31 percent of the, the cases alleged not natural. So that's a, a pretty, pretty significant chunk. What I would say though, is because of some FDA activity, regarding um, what's natural, what's not natural. uh, That may have put a little bit of a chilling effect in terms of the growth of of this area of litigation and potentially um, where we see this headed is that the plaintiff's lawyers will change their theory or their targets from all natural or natural to products that are labeled as healthy or that look healthy. And this is something that we have identified specifically in the report that, that, that's worth mentioning. Um, you know, I think the, the watershed case here was the Nutella case in 2012 um, that seemed to endorse this particular point of view that's given a little bit of momentum to the plaintiff's farm. Um, you know, the other, the other big chunk of some of these common claims deal with slack bill. Uh, litigation. It's basically, you know, claims that a, a product container box or other packaging includes some extra space that might lead a consumer to believe that, you know, they're they're getting more product than what the package package actually contains. In fact, I think it was last week. NBC News had um, a slack fill related uh, story on class action litigation involving candies and candy boxes. And so, this is a a pretty big area. Uh, the other areas include evaporated cane, cane juice um, to um, product origin is another is another area of interest. You know, is it really uh, made in Bavaria or Bremen, you know, is beer really made in Bremen, Ger- Germany, or the product implies that when it was actually brewed in St. Louis, Missouri. And so, um, you know, these are all evolving theories. I, I can't imagine that this is going to be static because if you look at the plaintiff's bar, yeah, you know, they are constantly pushing the envelope on finding new products, finding new theories of liability, and new jurisdictions. So, you know, without intervention by Congress, without intervention by the courts, you know, this 750 percent increase that we saw from 2008 until you know where we are now could continue to rise, which is very troubling. You know, there's there's a very large emphasis in marketing, you know, to go for um, kind of the the folksy. Types of products, consumer products that are handmade or something that has a a certain customization to it, whether it's bourbon, whether it's you know, uh, whether it's ice cream. I, I think that this is certainly an area that that is worth looking at because you know the the litigation response to the way that the products are labeled and the way that the products are regulated, and there are marketing components to this, and of course. You know the labeling itself is subject to Federal Trade Commission and other other oversight, but when you have this private right of action to basically test and to raise other consumer theories, um, it becomes it, it becomes somewhat troubling as as you might imagine. So, you know, to 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 any reasonable consumer, um, you know what what can pass or what can't pass is subject to the eye of the beholder, but for the plaintiffs' far as, you know, what they say is subject to the lens of the jury.
0: Other targets mentioned in the Institute's report include health-related claims for any products with added sugar, products with trace amounts of unclaimed ingredients, trans fat, or partially hydrogenated oils, or claims related to the origin of the product. As for what type of products are most at risk? Harold says basically anything and everything in the grocery store is fertile ground for plaintiff lawyers. As
1: um, you know, plaintiff lawyers they're they're probably spending a lot of time in the grocery stores, not and 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 maybe not to get groceries, but to actually look at potential claims and looking at the products um, that are constantly evolving and there are new products coming coming to market. And you know the heaviest focus right now really. Uh, is, is on the food food industry, whether snack foods or beverages, or, um, or, or anything of that matter.
0: That said, the Institute found snack foods were the target in 22% of the federal and identified state class action actives in 2015 and 2016. Cheese accounted for 11%, juice 9%, and energy drinks were 4%. Coffee and tea also came in at 4%, but after that, the division becomes highly fragmented, earning just one or two percentage points for each type of food. Harold also notes that he doesn't see the litigation slowing any time soon, especially if the Fairness and Class Action Litigation legislation remains stalled or worse, in his opinion, fails.
1: If, if Congress can send to the president a, the Fairness and Class Action Litigation Act, we think that a lot of the profit motives driving this litigation would likely see would likely result in a reduction of this type of litigation and um, you know to to actually require lawyers to be lawyers and you know to to have clients who have genuine grievances as opposed to lawyer driven litigation which which is really what we're talking about here and so that that's the that's the variable out there. But, without the type of scrutiny from the courts, from the regulatory agencies, which include the FDA, or from Congress, you know this this upward trend could continue uh, moving upward, where um, you know as as long as there is an ability to extort settlements, and i I, I don't use that word lightly, but that's basically what this is. This is a <laughs> this is a shakedown of the food industry. Um, as long as as long as the incentive is there this litigation will continue to grow and um, you know the, the front lines here are really the judges at this point because they're the ones you know who are overseeing the litigation but um, there needs to be a national response to this because otherwise you know, imagine what could happen with more and more litigation you know it's going litigation really amounts to a torque tax because somebody's got to pay those costs you know costs of the attorneys' fees, costs of hiring, you know, hiring court reporters and doing the research. I mean, litigation is expensive in this country, and um, you know that gets passed on to the consumers. So it's something that really ought to be considered as part of um, you know trying trying to bring a little more balance to the way that the class action litigations are currently pursued.
0: So I usually try and end these things on a positive note, but to hear Harold tell it, in this case, there really isn't one. He says because of the whack-a-mole nature of class-action litigation, manufacturers' best defense is a good offense, which they can hone by watching where litigation is going and changing their advertising and claims as needed. And so on that grim note, we've come to the end of another week's episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast. But I hope you'll join me again next week for hopefully a happier topic. Until then, this is Elizabeth Crawford wishing you a productive and profitable week.